You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Alexandra Hudson, who is the founder of Civic Renaissance. Also, you have a class program on the great choruses called Storytelling and the Human Condition. And also this book come out just recently called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. Welcome, Lexi. Thanks, Greg, for having me. Now, this book, you referred to it as a humanities manifesto. Is that right? A humanistic manifesto. It extols the high gift of being human and appreciating that gift, both in ourselves and others. And I think that's really the core malady we suffer from in our world today, an insufficiently high view of what it means to be human, the gift of being human, both in ourselves and in others. And that's what makes it so easy to act in ways that actually harm others and harm ourselves. And it's what makes it really easy to dehumanize others when we don't appreciate this profound gift of our dignity and our shared common humanity. And we could think of it as a recent volume, which speaks back to previous volumes in the tradition of the wisdom literature, right? And you lean on wisdom literature from not just Western traditions, but non-Western traditions to show that as long as we've been thinking about these issues, we've been thinking about the connection between individual virtue and civic society. In other words, great cultures, great societies come from the cultivation of great individuals. This tradition, I mean, it's a very rich tradition, but it seems to, I don't know, have thinned out a bit (laughs) recently. I mean, we don't have a lot in the wisdom literature tradition on the bestseller lists. I mean, we do have a lot of how-to guides for certain things. We certainly do have books on manners. And you talk about, I think you come from a family of manners advisors. But of course, I think at least in the case of your mother, the manners was just sort of the, I guess, the tip of the spear to start talking about things like virtue and civility. Is there a connection there? I think that's a great point that a lot of the literature in this genre today tends to be technical, practical, instrumental. Like the manners books tend to be in the self-help category. Like how to win that promotion or Dale Carnegie's book, how to win friends and influence people, right? Like how to gain power and succeed to be on this path to social mobility and how manners and social graces can help you do that. And I argue in my book that I build on that tradition. I make the case that civility certainly has instrumental value. It's important for many external goods like supporting human flourishing, supporting democracy, supporting friendship, which is fundamentally the stuff of the good life, life in community with others. So it has many practical, tangible benefits. But I also build on the moral foundations and moral implications of civility as well that I think is really underappreciated today and certainly underrepresented in the literature and the books that are published in this genre today. And so I argue that civility is both an instrumental good, as I mentioned, but is also an inherent good. It is good in and of itself to treat another human being with respect, acknowledging the dignity and an equal moral worth they have to us just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And again, there are so many forces today that want to diminish 
that value, diminish the importance of the humanity and dignity and respect we owe to the other because the tenor of our public discourse is so apocalyptic. It's so high stakes. And we're always going to be tempted. We always have been tempted as a species to dehumanize the other when the stakes are high, when we feel threatened, when we feel like our livelihood, or our well-being, our way of life is at risk. And I really, I wrote my book to be an antidote to that, to be this manifesto that extols the high view of humanity that I think we need to realize that even when the stakes are high, we still owe the other something, some basic baseline of respect that is civility. Again, even when it might be costly to us and even when it's inconvenient, and that's just the right thing, inherently that is the right thing to do and it's an obligation we have. Now, this taps into a long tradition, which I, I think perhaps is best articulated by Augustine, right? So you go back to Augustine and it's this idea that there's a tension between what we might think of as nature and what we might think of as civilization or culture or God, right? If you're religiously inclined. I mean, is that dichotomy still useful? I mean, it goes from Augustine all the way up through Freud. I mean, it's a dichotomy that the Greeks leaned into. Do we still find that dichotomy useful? This idea of suppressing or at least cultivating or domesticating our natural impulses or our desire to be selfish and self-aggrandizing and pursuit of power and so forth? Yes. Blaise Pascal, one of my favorite thinkers in, in intellectual history, polymath, scientist, absolute genius, geometric mind, also a Christian apologist and, and theologian. He said that man is a chimera. We have this inherent duality, this inherent tension in, in our nature and who we are. Chimera is this character from ancient Greece, this mythological creature that had this like composite, it was like this amalgamation of many creatures, like the head of a lion, the tail of a donkey, like different things like that. It was just a multifaceted creature. And Pascal says, we are chimeras, like we are at cross purposes with ourselves constantly. And I build on this vision of human nature given to us from everyone from Aristotle to Augustine and, and many, many others after him, that there is this duality to our nature that we are profoundly social as a species. Like Aristotle said, we're a political animal, we're a social animal. In the Hebrew Bible, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Marcus Aurelius talked about how we become fully human in community, in relationship. We become, we achieve our best selves. We, re we realize our potential in relationship. And yet, morally and biologically, we are defined by self-love. We are geared to meet our own needs before others. And those two facets of who we are are intention. That is why my book explores the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep difference? This is the most important question of our current moment. This is the most important, this is the central question of, of liberal democracy, of, of American democracy itself. How do we peacefully coexist even when we differ? And yet, as I realized while writing this book, this is the timeless human question as well. This is the question we've been grappling with as long as we've been around as a species. How do we overcome the self-love endemic to our nature and thrive, fully thrive in relationship with others? And so this timeless problem, and I also discovered that the solution is timeless. And across history, across culture, from the oldest book in the world in ancient Egypt to sacred Sanskrit texts, the Ramayana and the Maharabhat, to medieval texts on etiquette and manners, to the mismanners of the Greco-Roman world, a guy named Isocrates, whom I tell the story of, to George Washington and others who drank from similar intellectual well, as like the Jesuits. I talk about Della Casa, who, a Giovanni Della Casa, 
was an Italian Renaissance scholar and writer who wrote this great book on manners. But, you know, a through line across these texts, across history and culture is this idea of restraint, this idea of restraining our self-love, curbing what we might otherwise want to do or say, curbing those natural impulses that might undermine the social project so that the social project might flourish. And so implicitly, cultures across history and across culture have affirmed this similar view of human nature. And independently, sometimes there was a sort of intellectual lineage where readers were influenced by one another. But also, there were some individuals, thoughtful individuals, who just observed human nature and thought, what works when it comes to doing life well? What what, what works when it comes to achieving and realizing the good life? And what doesn't? And they put pen to paper and distilled and immortalized this wisdom that can still benefit us today. And that's very much the tradition, the wisdom tradition that I revive to help us think more clearly about this problem now. Now, look, if anybody who studied history of philosophy or literature or religion has encountered folks like Pascal and Augustine and maybe even read Gilgamesh, but you highlight this whole strand of intellectual history which focuses on these folks who wrote books on manners and so forth. And I was unfamiliar with a lot of these characters, right? Like Petrus Alfonsi and Daniel <laughs> of Beckles and Thomason and Dionysus, Dionysus yeah. Cato. I mean, I remember reading about how George Washington had that like guide that taught him how when he read. But where did it virtually. come from? No one ever right. talked about that. But it's part of this rich and vibrant intellectual tradition that connected manners to morals, etiquette to ethics. Like how we behave affects our character and our soul. And our character affects our behavior as well. There is this reciprocal relationship. And yet, it's not perfectly mirrored. And this is why I make the essential distinction between civility and politeness throughout my book as well. Yeah. And when you start that discussion, you talk about your time in in Washington and you talk about how you met some people that were wonderfully polite on the outside, but they would stab you in the back, right? When you weren't looking. And I've worked with some people like this and it's, I don't even know how to respond to people like that, right? When somebody's openly hostile, I think you kind of know maybe how to behave, but if someone is overtly polite and hostile in the background, it's like, I don't even know what to do with people like that, right? And you you suggest that you unbundle them, but I don't even know how how to do that. So this concept of unbundling in my book is one of my favorite ideas because it's been, I think, the most personally helpful for me. I think it's an area that I struggle with a lot personally, and I think our culture struggles with a lot personally. So I talk about this idea of unbundling people and also unbundling situations too. And we are very quick today to latch on to one aspect of who a person is or one thing they've said or done and define them. By that thing. Often it's in the context of we hear cancel culture a lot, right? Like someone has an unpopular opinion or an unorthodox opinion, or they've done, or they've done something like objectively wrong or bad or ungracious or unkind or even illegal. And then we define the whole their whole legacy, their whole life by that one decision, by that one aspect of who they are. And Alexander Pope so beautifully said, to err is to be human, to forgive is divine. And we are all going to make mistakes. 
and like we, it, what's frustrating about this, what's difficult about it, about this is that we are so quick to define people by their worst moment. And yet, of course, we would not want to be defined by our worst moment if it happened to be captured on camera and broadcasted all over the internet. And we were publicly shamed and mortified and told that we were never welcome again in polite society and fired from our jobs. And like, it, I mean, it's just outrageous. It's horrible. It's essentializing. It is deeply dehumanizing to, so I argue for unbundling, which sees the part in light of the whole, the mistake in light of the dignity of the person, the even the bad opinion. Not all of us are right on everything. Not one of us, right? Not one of us. We're, we're all going to be wrong on something. We're all going to have a bad view on something or other. And how do we, instead of defining the person by that one bad view, say, actually, like, what can we learn from them and other areas? Like, I, I do believe deeply that every single person we encounter has something to teach us. They've had an experience that we can learn from. They have an insight that can make our lives better. I believe that very deeply, which is why I talk at length about curiosity, why curiosity can go a long way to healing our deep divide. So anyway, that's unbundling people, like seeing the part in light of the whole, the mistake, the bad idea, bad opinion, bad view, in light of the irreducible dignity and worth of the human being and not letting the part define the whole, but seeing it in context and remembering that we do owe people a bare minimum of respect by virtue of our, our dignity and shared humanity. I also talk about unbundling circumstances. Again, this is this hermeneutic that we all rely on very often that we meet one person. I'll, go, I'll give an example. Like I am renovating my home right now. I came home a year ago from Christmas holiday. We land and my house manager sends us a text saying, call me immediately. There's a problem with the house and then call your insurance company. And after a long day with travel with two kids, we're like, my husband and I look at each other, we're like, oh no. And we walk home and it is pouring rain inside of our home. A pipe had burst on the third floor during a polar vortex and it had probably been raining in our home three or four days and destroyed half our home, virtually all of our belongings. So we've been displaced for a year and it's just been like, doing battle with insurance. And then it's been like contractor hell. Like <laughs> I kid you, like it's been the worst experience of my entire life. And there have been contractors that have come to my home, said, okay, like I'm going to do this job for you and I'm going to charge you this amount. And then like take my money and just like not do the job. Just not do it. Literally not do it. <laughs> and I'm like, it's it's been really a jading experience for me. I've had experiences where, where I'm like, that person like just lied to my face. How can I trust anyone? Wait, that can, happens I, in Indiana? I mean, it happens, it happens, it happens everywhere. <laughs> the human condition is the human condition. But like the point is, I've been tempted sometimes to like be like, yeah, I'm going to do all the work myself. I don't want to trust another contractor. Like mm. I can't, like I, I felt really jaded. And we do that in many different realms of life. We have one experience with one person that that we take that experience and generalize and make assumptions about an entire group of people. And what's harmful about that is that we don't allow people to come into our lives and we don't take them as they are. We don't see them in the, their uniqueness and in their individuality. And when we don't do that, we degrade their dignity. And, and yet again, here, like I, I wrote this whole book on civility and yet I don't live up to my own ideals that I talk about in the book every day, every day. It's a struggle. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't undermine the ideas of the book. That's the point. That that just because they we have I we uh, don't live up to our these ideals, that doesn't undermine them. We have to keep struggling, keep striving to do so. So that's unbundling people and unbundling circumstances as well. Like not, or even like in a small way, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic and then your boss yells at you at work and then you yell at your assistant and then you yell at your wife at home, like the sort of vicious cycle, kicking the cat mentality. That is a form of failing to unbundle circumstances. You're not taking this situation in isolation. You're not saying, okay, that person cut me off or flipped me off and 
that's more about them than me. Like you're allowing that emotional baggage to carry with you throughout the day and passing that negativity, that viciousness on and causing strife in other people's lives. And well, ultimately, as the saying goes, maybe knocking your innocent cat on your way in the door. Like that's horrible. It's so unjust. It's so unfair. It's so, so degrading and not respectful of others. And as I argue in my book, it's not good for our own souls as well when we treat other people less graciously than we should. Well, you make the distinction between appearance and reality, right? And between politeness and civility. But a lot of these kind of instruction manuals focus on behaviors and they focus on habits. I mean, is there an extent to which if you behave in certain ways, it will ultimately shape your motivations? Is there a feedback loop there where, you know, act in certain ways and then the motivation will follow, right? Because it's kind of hard to cultivate the motivation. It's relatively easy to modify or adjust one's behaviors. No, you're absolutely right. So I, as you allude to, I make this distinction between appearance, reality, civility, and politeness as I learn in government. So I, by just zooming out and telling my story a little bit, I was raised, I came to my interest in this subject. Honestly, my mother's called Judy, the manners lady, this expert on on manners and civility, not Judith Martin, the Miss Manners columnist at the Washington Post. Although my mother is one of four women named Judy, her courtesy and expert, which is very funny. And there's also Judith Martin of the Washington Post, and there's two others on top of her. So anyway, I was always kind of skeptical of being told what to do. I hate, I hate arbitrary rules. They're just like very triggering for me. Like someone who says, do this just because I said so. It's like, no, like I want to understand where our norm right, like forks on the left. Why, why forks right. on the left? Right. Right. Not on the right. Does it matter? You know, there's no moral significance to that. And I'm like, you know, make a case that there's a, like, I want to know the reason for this. I always hunger for these questions behind why we do things the way we do them. My mother said that they would lead to success in work and school and life. And so I followed them. And she was right until I found myself in federal government in a very divided moment in our world, in our country, 2017 to 2018. And there I saw these two extremes. I saw people who were, on one hand, they were ruthless. They were, they had sharp elbows. They were willing to do and say anything to get ahead. And you, like, I just knew to stay away from those people. And then on the other hand, there were people who, at, th- at first I thought they were my people. They were polished and poised and polite but ruthless and cruel. These are the people who would smile one moment, stab me and others in the back the next. And this second contingent really threw me because of this profound mismatch, right, between appearance, reality, inner, outer. And one thing my mother had said growing up was that manners mattered because they were an outward extension of our inward character. And yet here I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered and yet ruthless and cruel. So that clarified for me several things. One is that these two extremes, the extreme hostility and bellicosity and then extreme like niceness and tone policing, these extremes define the extremes in our public life right now. They're those that are just trying to like get us to talk nicer together and also kind of silencing unpopular ideas. And then there's a contention that says no, to break through that culture of hypocrisy and politeness that we have to be bullies and be the, you know, support the strong men in order to puncture that pretense. And yet, when that overcorrection, that of wanting to puncture the pretense with the aggression, that is overcorrecting. And what I realize is that these seem like polar opposites. They're actually two sides of the same coin. The extreme politeness and the extreme hostility, they, again, they seem like polar opposites, but they're incredibly similar because both instrumentalize others. They see other human beings as means 
to their selfish ends, as opposed to beings who are worthy of respect by virtue of our common humanity in and of themselves, full stop. And I also realized this essential distinction between civility and politeness, that politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's technique, it's external, it's the, the, the stuff, whereas civility is internal. It's the disp- it's a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of respect, and that crucially sometimes actually respecting others requires being impolite, telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate. And that I, I argue that, that the core argument of my book is that so you don't necessarily uh, avoid conflict, right? So if you're willing to talk about politics and religion at a, at a dinner. That's exactly right. That's actually a way to respect someone, not to paper over a difference, not to diminish it, not sweep it under the rug, but grapple with it head on, telling a hard truth, engaging in, in robust debate, telling your wife that she's like in her teeth at dinner. That's like might be un- uncomfortable. That's the loving, the, re- the respectful thing to do. And so I argue that throughout my book, we need, instead of being content focusing on the external. Like so much of our culture today is really focused on saying the right things and doing the right gestures. But I think we need to re- reorient our focus towards the internal. Like what is actually respecting people? It's, it's, I, I love this George Bernard Shaw line and insight that I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like you can uh, get away with absolute murder. Like it's amazing what you can get away with if you just go through the trouble of following the rules. And that's really the case. Like you, it's, and as I learned in government, that you can get away with a lot. We can smile, do and say the right things, and then like Machiavellian style, like you're orchestrating and, and working and undermining people behind the scenes. Like, for example, did you watch Slow Horses at all? No. You didn't? Okay, you should. <laughs> get, get on that. It's a great, it's a great British kind of spy comedy, but there, this like really Machiavellian MI5 second in command gives her superior a gorgeous bottle of scotch to pr- congratulate her on her promotion. And she works simultaneously while doing that, works for literally like three years on this revenge plot to like undermine her and unseat her from her throne so she can assume that role. So it's just like a great, it's like a great example. If you were slow horses, so yeah, you should watch it. But it's just a great example of like uh, something we know to be true, that it's entirely possible to do and say the right thing. And to your question though about the relationship between inner and outer external, like at its best, politeness can perfect and enhance the inner disposition of the heart. But I think that the heart needs to come first. It it needs to, we should focus on the heart in terms of how we educate and how we talk about this issue. Like getting the disposition of actually truly respecting others and not just being content with people gesturing at respecting others through the norms and, and through the politeness. Well, do you think people can tell the difference? I mean, people talk about their brand, right? And you could make a case that, hey, politeness, this could be part of your brand, you know, then people will think that you care about them and so forth. I mean, you talk about this asymmetric information problem, right? Like when we meet people, we don't know what their motivations are. Should we just act as if they are motivated by civility until proven otherwise? It's a great question. And I think we do. We have this sort of generalized trust in our society that is actually essential to our democracy. Many thoughtful political scientists, political theorists have talked about why, you know, you used the phrase thin trust earlier, why that's necessary to just like gently lubricate society that we don't walk around and walk through life assuming everyone's out to get us and assuming everyone's going to, the world's going to rob us at any moment. Well, well, some of us do. And and in some societies, it's probably a a wise (laughs) practice, Right. right? 
Right. And that's exactly right. The point is there are costs associated with that mentality, right? Like not just the anxiety of, oh my gosh, like having your psychology and soul be in that constant fight or flight mode, like who's going to under... And that, and to be honest, back to my experience in government, that's how I felt for a year of my life. I was in this fight or flight mode where I'm like, okay, who's going to bully me and yell at me? And, and when people were nice, I'm like, well, are they really nice? Or are they <laughs> just seeking to undermine me? I had one colleague who would pray with me at lunch and flatter me. And then she'd be like undermining me the next moment. And I thought we shared this fundamental faith orientation to the world. And then she'd go about behind my back and lie about me to my superiors and other people. And once that happened, once in that context, I'm like, well, who can I trust? And so this is exactly the point. This is exactly the problem that we, it's never a perfect correlation between inner and outer. And back to our idea about unbundling people, unbundling circumstances, like we really need to, as a society and as individuals, strive not to let the dishonesty jade us to approach every person we meet. Like, And it's a great question. How do we have that discretion, that nuance between, you know, of course, not walking in, not being naive and, and walking in and being taken advantage of making the same mistake with the same human type over and over again? Like, how do we learn from our experiences? But also, how do we not let past hurts, past wounds, past traumas define who we are and, and overcorrect that we're not giving anyone the benefit of the doubt and we're really assuming the worst about people when we shouldn't. Well, do you think we live in a particularly uncivil time and place? I mean, there are two conflicting historical narratives, right? There's this one that I guess Adam Ferguson uh, first articulated, right? That, you know, commercial society undermines. No, it was Caldoun. It was that. I mean, Caldoun said it first. Yeah, okay. exactly. And I think Robert Putnam would probably be the modern version of that, right? Bowling alone and so forth. But then there's this whole other narrative, right? Like Norbert Elias, who said that the civility of the aristocracy is now like percolating all the way down to the masses. Of course, his piece was untimely written in 1939, right? right? right. But, right. but I mean, do is, is there a trend towards greater civility or is civility sort of a thing of the past? I mean. Yeah, it's a great point. You're getting to these narratives that are very common today. And in fact, has always been common. These narratives of like monolithic decline, like society is going to hell in a handbasket and people complaining about kids these days, like Erasmus of Rotterdam, this intellectual superstar of the Italian, of the, not the Italian, the European Renaissance and a guy who lived his life every two years living in a different court, tutoring princes and dining with aristocracy. He was just like great conversation and jovial and well-read and just like a genius who also cared deeply about manners. He knew, he wrote a whole book on manners for children and what inspired him to write this book. He had an encounter with an uncouth youth and he's like, okay, enough is enough. I'm writing this book. So for once and for all, like improve manners in today's youth who have like forgotten manners, which is so funny because like complaining about kids these days, it's always been that. like people complaining about the manner, the degradation of manners of, of upcoming generations. I love this. I think it's Hannah Arendt. I learned this being on Jonah Goldberg's podcast. This is his favorite quote. He says, every generation has to incorporate a slew of barbarians. They have to defend off this slew of barbarians and assimilate them into society. And we call them children. And I think what's so great about that insight is like kids are not born. I don't know. Anyone who's had kids knows that like kids are really uncivilized and they can be really cruel and just like selfish. And anyone who says that human nature is inherently good and altruistic and generous has never been a parent. Like every day I am both teaching my kids and also trying to model for them 
service and self-sacrifice, which is cultivated. It is an act of human will and an effort to continually remind my children to think of the needs of, like to my son Percival, to think of his sister Sophia Margot, and for Sophia to think of Percy and like not just to be monolith, monomaniacally thinking of oneself, because that's like the most natural thing in the world to do. Well, I mean, you talk about parenting and education in the book also, and the purpose of a kind of a humane education is to shape the character of the youth, right? But I think that's not what most people would say education is for. And even parenting now, right? I think a lot of people think that parenting is, you know, you give what Einstein for babies, right? You know, you're trying to right. give, your, give your kids these skills that will help them survive, which we think of often as professional skills as opposed to character traits. Do we need to? rethink our education and kind of restore it to this vision of humane education? I mean, do it more explicitly. I mean, we are, I guess, implicitly doing a bunch of this. But even if you take a class in the humanities now, I mean, no one would say that, you you know, who's teaching an English class, that they are instructing character. They would say, oh, well, we're learning how to do historical analysis or textual interpretation and so forth. It's a great point. I think we have lost sight today with our emphasis on a utilitarian view of education, like vocational training, like what are market needs and how do we skill up people currently in the market to meet market needs and and train new generations of workers to, to meet market needs. I think that we have lost sight of what education is, which is the art of cultivating humanity. It is creating and fostering, cultivating good humans, the Latin root of education Latin word for education is educare, which means to call out or to lead forth. And that's what education is and and has been in different times and, and places, this process by which we bring forth and call out and lead forth that which is best in us as human beings, cultivating our humanity, not just making us more human, but as you noted, also more humane, more gentle and, and less savage and cruel and more kind And it's helping us to appreciate, again, the purpose of my book, which is the gift of being human. And as we appreciate and cultivate our own humanity, we appreciate the humanity in other people as well in all of its manifestations. And so I do think that we've lost sight of that. I do talk about paideia in ancient Greece and humanitas and and in ancient Rome, and also civility during the Italian Renaissance, all of which shared this same purpose of ordering our loves helping us to see the needs of others alongside of ourselves instead of just monomaniacally walking through life, single-mindedly pursuing our own needs and wants and desires, taking a step back and, and thinking of others alongside of ourselves, before ourselves often, because that's what a society, and, and again, repressing our passion, our baser natures and our, our baser passions. That's what society civilization and the good life demands, it requires. And so it is interesting that paideia was this word for education in ancient Greek and also for culture and and had this vision of education that was soul craft. It was character formation. It was ordering of the loves, ordering the passions. Same with humanitas, which gives us our word humanities and is inextricably bound with the liberating arts, the liberal arts Mm -hmm. as we conceive them today. And this vision of education was revived 
especially amongst the elite in the Renaissance period. And, and the phrase used to describe this, the education was, was civility. That the idea, this vision of social change in Italy during this time was forming the character of a new generation of leaders and hoping that had a trickle-down effect and to reform the character of, of society writ large, which is really beautiful and I think has a lot of important implications in our world today that's very democratic, where most students have the opportunity to become educated. And so what does that mean? How should this mandate of of education, of creating good humans, how ought that inform how we are educating today, especially in a democracy where we all have agency, we all have a voice? And what responsibility do we have as both citizens, but also as leaders who are making these decisions that affect millions of students? So again, my next book is, is on education exploring some of these themes. Well, I mean, how do people's characters get shaped now if if it's not explicit instruction? You also mentioned there's this movement. I didn't know about this. I guess it's in Texas where there are some public schools that the curriculum is explicitly designed around character formation or the humanities. I mean, it sounds relatively small, but it's just... In it's the- that's right. In the public school system, no less. Like this is a, you know, the classical liberal arts humanities movement tend to be in private universities or in private parochial, often religious K to 12 schools. But what I liked about this model is that it shows it can be done. This model of connecting education to civility, to soul craft, to character formation, it can be done in the public school. There's a lot of concern that no one wants to send their kids to be indoctrinated, right? And so there's a lot of concern of of, of morality being purveyed in, in public institutions. And yet, it shouldn't be controversial to educate students to be more gentle to their fellow human beings and to cultivate their humanity by giving them a well-rounded exposure to the arts, the sciences, philosophy, poetry, mathematics, like that. This has been the vision of the good life. And again, unlocking our potential, helping to bring forth, again, to the etymology of education, the best version of ourselves so that we can contribute to life and society better. There was an explicitly civic aspect to this vision of education. In ancient Greece and ancient Rome, it was just men and elites, free men, not women, not slaves, who were privy to this form of education, but but it was explicitly linked to leadership. It was explicitly linked. This is the education that a free citizen ought to have, which is a really interesting, you know, great hearts that the, the network of schools that serves nearly 30,000 kids in Texas and Arizona, it's advertised and is a classical school. And there is a really robust community of classical education in America, over a million strong, and it's growing all the time. It's in homeschool, it's in public charter schools, it's in private schools, but it's robust, it's, it's exciting, it's growing. Equally as robust, though, is the energy behind civics education in this country. There's a keen interest in creating good citizens, knowing our history, knowing where we came from, knowing about how our institutions work. And what's interesting to me is that historically, these two modes of education were inextricably bound, right? Creating a good human was creating a good citizen, creating a good citizen was creating a good human, vice versa. And it was preparing us for civic participation and leadership, especially relevant in democracy. And today it's so siloed. It is so segmented. These communities, they don't know one another. They don't talk to one another. They're very well funded. There's a ton of energy around them. So it's one of my areas of kind of intellectual, but also practical interest is like marrying these energies to and reuniting them. And I hope that my book reaches both communities and and continues to to permeate both communities for that exact purpose, because they have been one of the same project historically. Well, you cite Erasmus quite a bit. He's one of my favorites Mm -hmm. as well. But, you know, as we know, right, it wasn't that long after Erasmus was writing that we had these kind of religious wars that took place in Europe. And I think 
a lot of people compare the religious wars of the 17th century to what we're experiencing now. I mean, obviously people aren't <laughs> killing each other, but there are these divides around politics that seem to suck all of the oxygen out of more local concerns and local affiliations. And one of the analogies that you reference in the, in the book is this idea of porching. Now, I'd never heard this term porching. I, I love this term. I, I, when I lived in Philadelphia, we had front porches. And as I would walk home from school to my house, I'd pass all these porches and I'd see all the people on the porches and it took forever to get home because, yeah, at least when the weather was nice, because you'd stop and talk to all the people on the porches. But there was a shift where the porches went from the front to the back. And this sort of deprived our sort of civic life of these kind of spontaneous interactions. But it seems like the thing that de Tocqueville saw in America, which was this robust kind of joinery, right? People would join things and join clubs and like the Rotary Club. You were a Rotary scholar. These things, people now seem to spend more time worried about kind of national or international political issues and less about their kind of local communities. Is this a worrisome trend? What's driving this? It's absolutely worrisome. I'm so glad you brought up Tocqueville because he made this observation in his Democracy in America about local governance being corroded by federal governments. He said he analogized local governance to a muscle and that as the federal government gets increasingly involved in local government, the muscle atrophies. And once the muscle atrophies, it's incredibly hard to rebuild. And what, what Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, most people I know don't even know the name of their mayor, right? I mean, right. who's the mayor of Berkeley? Like, I know, I know nobody the name knows. <laughs> I'm always tweeting at him because my roads are never paved. And like, I'm always like having my tires pop because it's like driving on the moon here in Indianapolis. But anyway, what's interesting about Tocqueville's insight is that that also applies not just to active governance, but with our attention as well. I think to exactly your point, we're paying way more attention not to our local governance, but to federal government, like the federalization, the nationalization of our political discourse in life is a problem. And it's atrophying, I think, our attention to local issues. And it's disempowering. It's atrophying our sense of agency and our power and how we can be a part of the solution. Like the title of my book is The Soul of Civility. The, the, the subtitle is Timeless Principles to heal society and ourselves. And I do focus on the individual level. This is an individual problem. This is not a problem that any single public policy or any single public leader has come in and caused. And it is not a problem that any single public policy, public leader, private corporation could come in and fix. It is an individual, like micro-human problem that is embodied and, and resolved at the individual micro, person-to-person -person and community level. And that's what's so frustrating to public leaders who want to come in and, and have quick and easy fixes. That. And this is beyond the realm of government and, and law. Even it's the purview of the individual, purview of the soul. And we could talk about more about where the reference to the soul of civility in my book comes from. It's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day and very, very soon, but it's a reference to his conception of the soul. That is my title. And so to your point, though, I argue in the final chapter of my book that we've made idols out of democracy, out of public life, out of our national public discourse. And we need, it's not, when we have an unhealthy love, unhealthy addiction to something, and we know that we've made idols and we have an unhealthy addiction to this because it's, it's invaded all areas of our lives. Things that were historically 
apolitical now have a profound political dimension and valence to them, like sports and schools and education and what newspaper you read, what area of town you live in. All of these historically apolitical decisions now, like you can assess a person's political dimension based on these decisions. And, and, and we do that all the time. And that's not good. Not good for our souls. Not good for democracy. Democracy is a beautiful and important, wonderful thing. But there's such a thing as too much of a good thing. And we're overdoing democracy by making it part of every aspect of our lives. And we're undermining it as a result. We are not able to disagree with people rationally anymore. It's no longer two minds disagreeing. It's as traditional touchstones of meaning faith, family, community, friendship have rescinded, people have derived their ultimate meaning and their identity in these pu- in public issues. And so now when there's a disagreement, they're put into flight or flight mode. They feel like the very essence of who they are has been under attack and they're reacting like a wild animal. They're like, okay, well, you're a bad person. You're a threat to who I am. And that's bad for rational, reason, deliberative discourse that our regime depends on. And so I argue it's not enough just to say, okay, we've identified an unhealthy love, an unhealthy addiction. We can't just say, okay, politics matter less to us. We have to replace, we have to displace that unhealthy love, that unhealthy attachment with with something better and more beautiful. And I talk about beauty. I talk about transcendence. I talk about the sublime intellectual curiosity, which is good, you know, intrinsically. It's the stuff of the life well lived to just be covering new intellectual territory and growing. But it's also, as you thoughtfully discuss, an essential tool to healing our divides, you know, being curious about people and where they come from in the world and how they view the world and not just saying, you know, you think this, therefore, I never, and I know everything there is to know about you. I also talk about friendship, especially friendship across difference. These are just a few of many examples I could have given of things that can restore our soul, fill us up, and cause us to be have a little bit more grace and compassion when we interact with others and not immediately go from zero to 60, fight or flight, in the heat of a moment when we encounter someone who disagrees with us. That I think that we are all emotionally running on empty. We're all talking about the hard things all the time. And that's not good for our souls and certainly not good for our regime. Well, so then is this politicization of life sort of filling some vacuum because it doesn't seem like if the original tension was between self and others this shift from concern with more local things with these national things that doesn't seem like a move back to the self it seems like a move towards some other collective concern but one that's more distant and abstract it's a great point like i think another symptom of this misplaced meaning is that everything has a political dimension. I remember, where was I? It was my birthday. It was April, like three years, three or four years ago now. And I got the devastating news that Notre Dame was burning. And I was so fascinated by the news coverage of that. Full disclosure, these days I do not watch the news. I'm like a net not news consumer because it's like I I try to live out what I preach, which is like focus on what you can control. And so much of the news is like stuff we can't control and stuff that is like anxiety inducing and frustrating and angry. The, the anxiety industrial complex. I call exactly. No, exactly. You're so right. But I was so fascinated with the news coverage of, of Notre Dame because you could literally write the headlines according to what outlet it was. It was like, you know, a socialist outlet was like, and this is why Notre Dame's burning. And this is why we need more funding for public infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the conservatives in France are, you know, cutting funding and we need more funding for public works. And this wouldn't have happened if, and others were like, and so this is why socialist government is so bad and like incompetent. And this is what happens. And it was just so interesting. People couldn't just be content with, this is a tragedy. This is so sad. 
seeing this great masterpiece of art and architecture destroyed. It had to have, like, it, we, we are meaning-making machines. And if the most salient part of our identity and the, the core prism through which we see the world is our political valence, then we're going to map that onto everything. And that's so bad. That's really harmful for, again, seeing people in their com- full complexity, their fullness, their, their multiplicity, seeing tragedies as just tragedies or joys as just joys. And, and in, instead, we have to imbue them with all this, all this baggage, all this, we, again, whatever meaning we want it to have and to be. But I thought that was like a particularly interesting example of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about the debate over reading instruction, how phonics is the Republican way to teach reading. And holistic understanding is the democratic way of How funny. You know, teaching reading. It's like, what? <laughs> like, right. you know. As long as you learn to read, like, right, right. <laughs> right. How can that be a, a political thing? Yeah. And I think certainly this idea of a classics education has now assumed some kind of political valence as, yeah. as well, right? I mean, how did that happen? Yeah, I think it it gets back to this discourse of a lot of these great works of art in the Western classical tradition. They were white men and they were oppressors and they were slave owners and they were complicit and injustice. Confucius and... Ibn no, Khaldun. exactly. I mean, exactly. This is something I, I talk about in my TV series for Wondram and the Great Courses on called Storytelling on the Human Condition. I actually zoom out. I don't actually like the kind of the great books nomenclature. I prefer the great conversation. And this is, as I define it in my series, this is the dialogue about foundational questions that every single human being should have the opportunity to ask and answer for themselves in order to be considered truly educated. Questions of origin purpose, destiny. Who are we? Why are we here? What is the best way to live? That these are thoughtful questions that thoughtful people across history and culture have reflected on and offered answers to. And we do ourselves a profound disservice if we don't grapple with these questions in the context of how other thoughtful people before us have answered them. And there's no universe in which one can, in good conscience, make a claim that the West is the only culture to have grappled with these questions or offered thoughtful contributions to this conversation. And this is exactly the point, that it, it's, it's not a monolith, right? It is a dialogue. It's debate. Different people across time and place have offered different answers to this question. And that's why it's laughable. Even within the Western context, people have differed and disagreed, right? And this is why it's so laughable. And again, I think deeply dehumanizing to hear people say, oh, well, the whole Western tradition is just racist and patriarchal and white supremacist. It's like, what? Like, there were... Like John Stuart Mill argued for the rights of women before anyone did. Homer was blind, right? He was disabled. Augustine was from North Africa. Like he was probably a person of darker skin. Like there's just no, Epictetus was a slave, you know? Like there's just no universe in which there, in which there is this, every single person in this cultural context, cultural milieu is the same. But that sort of false equivalency, like equating all of them, every person in this tradition and this dialogue is so reductive, so harmful. And we do ourselves a profound disservice if we don't engage with it. And we do ourselves a profound disservice if we just write it off unilaterally as opposed to saying, where can we learn? Where are there things to be imbibed and where we can be challenged and grow from as a result? But some people would argue that the cultivation of the self is profoundly anti-political, right? So if you just cultivate your garden, then you will be complicit in the the injustices around you. I I think that's probably one, one of the arguments people would make against this idea that you start with cultivating your own virtue. And that's all, but that really is all we can do. We really can't force someone to cultivate their virtue. And that's what the world tells us to do. And it's so disempowering. 
And it's frustrating, right? So we come along and we tell someone to cultivate their virtue. They're like, no. And we're like, okay, well, now what do I do? We can't force them to cultivate their virtue. Like, it's just focusing on what we can control is the most empowering answer to the solution. And as I talk about my book, we have way more power than we realize to either be part of the problem or to be part of the solution. You know, we, we underappreciate how our everyday decisions either support or detract from this joint project of living well together, this project of civilization, this project of democracy, that every moment of every day we have a choice to make. Are we going to consider the needs of others and the well-being of others alongside of ourselves? Or again, are we just going to single-mindedly pursue our own interests? And those that single-mindedly pursue their interests, and they annoy us. They, they degrade the everyday experience of life together. And those that go through life and, and intentionally sow these seeds of light and joy and brightness and kindness, those are, that is, I call it, we can be social gardeners. We can sow these these seeds as an act of faith in the way that gardening is an act of faith. You sow a seed in the ground and a few months later, like an abundant crop grows up, but you don't know what's going to happen. It's never a, a foregone conclusion. And there are many cases in which you sow seeds and cultivate crops that you might never see the fruits of in your lifetime. And that's certainly the same with how we live our lives every day, that our little acts like they can either hurt people in ways that we don't see or appreciate, or they can make people's lives better in ways we will never see and appreciate. And I know that's true because I've had the privilege of learning and living with incredible women, my grandmother and my mother, who lived their lives that way, according to this different logic of, I call this concept the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul. Magnanimous soul is this concept from Aristotelian philosophy where he talks about the human type that is so self-possessed that they can be utterly self-forgetful as they make their way into the world. And, you know, my mom and grandmother, they were Mary Kay saleswomen. They were beautiful. They were always polished and put together, but they knew that. And the moment they stepped outside the door, they forgot about themselves. And that was very much their, the way that they engaged. And they were totally, they thought they, that freed them to be totally other focused. And my grandmother, especially, she was someone who was just constantly sewing, constantly giving. She was unoffendable, which I call a, 20, a, a superpower of the 21st century. Like she was unflappable. You couldn't offend her if you wanted to. And we underappreciate that, that we don't have, if someone seeks our ill will, seeks to rile us up, we don't have to respond. That's within our control. She was excellent at telling, you know, she encountered someone who was malicious and unkind. She was excellent at telling stories of exoneration, stories. We're, we're quick to tell stories of condemnation. That's a bad person. And she was quick to tell a story like, you know what? Maybe that person is going through divorce. Maybe they had a bad diagnosis. Maybe they're, they have a you know, disabled child and things are really hard right now. Maybe they can't pay the bills. Like telling a story that was not about her in the moment and, and not a sum total of character assessment of who that person was. And these are all traits that are like are of a psychologically healthy person. And she also went through life just seeking to make people's days better and brighter. The way she lived her life, you know, we'll, we'll never see the, the, the benefits that she caused or, or reaped for, for everyone. But she put, she, with her life, she created a mellifluous echo. Her magnanimous soul created a mellifluous echo that reverberated across time and across place, again, in ways that we'll never see or fully appreciate this side of eternity. And, and that, that will make our world a better and, and, and brighter place. It has, and it continues to. You know, you had a great section in the book on hospitality, right? And the way in which you interact with strangers and people, acquaintances and friends. 
and definitely resonated with me. <laughs> you know, I love to host dinner parties and have people stay at my house. And I really wanted to have a house where I could host people. And that seems to, the uh, art of hospitality seems to be something that is, um, I guess, somewhat under exercised, right? In today's world where people will typically eat alone or order out. <laughs> and you, you emphasize the importance of eating together, I think, which is also, I think, underappreciated by a lot of people. It's so true. That's a great example. I, like porching is an example. I, 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 I call hospitality a high and noble expression of civility. And so porching is a great example of that. We didn't, when I left government, I fled to the Midwest. I, I came home from work one day and said to my husband, I'm done with DC. I'm done with politics. Let's move to Indiana, where he's from originally. And he said, okay, sounds good. Let's do it. No take backs. A few months later, we were out here and that was five and a half years ago. And uh, one of my first friends here was, her name is Joanna Taft. And she came up to me after church one day and said, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime. And I never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but you know, curious, we went home to her home that afternoon, her great big front veranda. And I realized that she's staging this quiet, subtle revolution against our atomized and divided status quo that she said, I, and like she curated people across race, politics, class, geography, even not to have a structured dialogue across difference, but just to inhabit a shared space, which is increasingly difficult to do unless we're intentional about it, to encounter people who we differ from. It's really easy to go through our lives. Like your podcast is called Unsiloed, right? It's easy, all too easy, virtually and physically to just exist in our silos and not really encounter people that we don't want to encounter. And this is what was so radical about what happened on her porch. She had brought these people together just to have unstructured conversations, to get to know one another beyond the label that the world wants us ascribe meaning to and, and attach our identity to. And just to get to know one another as people, as friends. And I actually had the privilege of traveling across the country, meeting other people like Joanna, who with front porches and without are doing the same thing. They're saying, I could, they're staging this quiet revolution against our division. They're saying, I can't control what's happening in Washington, but I can control myself. And I'm going to make my community, my family, my world better and stronger through those acts of hospitality, transforming the outsider to the inside, the stranger, the friend. Like that's powerful. That's way more powerful than any sort of public policy or legislation that can ever be done. That individual act of voluntary kindness is what will heal our world. I believe deeply in hospitality, deeply in the power of the individual to at least never permanently ameliorate this challenge, but at least make it a little bit better and brighter. Well, can you tell me what is the Civic Renaissance Project doing? What's it all about? How are you diffusing these ideas? Yes, I have this idea in my book on technology and our digital age on cultivating our digital garden. And I, that we are only one person. We can't legislate Facebook away. We can't control how people use these platforms. We can't control how other people are using these platforms or this new power to share information and how interconnected we are. These are also new, like, timeless problem that I explore in my book, this challenge of civility, but there are also new facets to this problem that make it particularly complex and make a book and conversation about this topic all the more urgent and timely. But I talk about how I'm doing this. Like I am barely on social media, but I, what I focus my energy on is my newsletter and community called Civic Renaissance. It's an intellectual community dedicated to beauty, goodness, truth, and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives. 
And I am focusing on just creating a community of people who love beauty and who want to make the world better and who care about social and cultural healing. And I'm cultivating, that's my digital garden. I'm cultivating that. I'm focusing on that. I'm not trying to convert people on social media to see the world as I do. That's a waste of time. No one's ever had their mind changed by being yelled at on Twitter before. Civic-Renaissance.com. I do invite everyone uh, enjoying this conversation to come continue Mm. learning and growing with us over there. Well, last question. Have you ever thought of taking all the tips and pointers that you have at the end of each chapter and just publishing them separately and providing you know, a new it, guidebook that maybe future George Washingtons can read when they're 13? It's a great it's a great idea. Very funny you said because it was originally one document. At the very end of my book, it was an appendix called 100 Ways to Make the World a More Civil Place. And it was a Actually, a friend of mine, George Will's ex-wife, who was reading my, her name is Madeline Will, a wonderful uh, woman and friend and someone who I got to know when I had the privilege of serving America's disability community when I was in government at the Department of Education and a wonderful friend and mentor of mine. But she said, Lexi, these ideas in the appendix, they're way too important to leave at the end of the book. Like you need them throughout the book. And I said, well, okay. So I, I categorized them according to what I thought was appropriate to each chapter and its themes. And I also used that section of every chapter to create a too long, didn't read section. Like these are just the highlight, the core themes of this chapter that if you don't care to read the whole chapter that you can read these five to 10 tips and you get the gist of it and how they apply to you right now. Right. Well, I look forward to maybe that version. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We can uh, d- disseminate and uh, look forward to seeing what kind of educational initiatives you think up going forward. So Lexi, thanks so much for joining me. The book is called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. Talk again soon. Such a pleasure, Greg. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.